The first reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and it's on page 265 in the Pew Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from whom who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Right, the second reading is the second half of chapter one of Revelation. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held se seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. 
I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This morning is the first of our new series, which we will be coming back to from time to time over the coming year, in which we're going to be working our way through the book of Revelation. See, I probably ought to declare my hand at this point. My PhD is on the book of Revelation. I've published books and articles about it for many years. And for eight years until quite recently, I chaired the Revelation Seminar at the British New Testament Conference. I'm regularly invited to speak on Revelation in churches and to groups of ministers, including on one memorable occasion a couple of years ago to a group in Gravesend known as Skeptics in a Pub. However, what I haven't done in the seven years I've been at Bloomsbury is to preach on Revelation in a systematic way. Hence, this year's sermon series. Uh, what I would say is uh, one of the wonderful things about Revelation is the amount of hymnody that draws on its imagery. If you go to the back of one of the hymn books and you look at where they do all the biblical, image, biblical lists and the hymn numbers, Revelation, I think, is second only to the Psalms in terms of its direct influence on Christian hymnody. And in terms of length, it's proportionately much more influential. So we do have available to us when we're coming to this some wonderful hymns that we're going to be able to uh, reacquaint ourselves with or learn. And I'm grateful to Helen for helping us with that one. We've sung that one in the evening a few times, but I think that was new for the morning. Uh, Stuart Townend writes some wonderful contemporary hymns, uh, but we'll be holding that alongside some traditional stuff as well. This morning's sermon is going to be a kind of introductory sermon offering what I think is a helpful way of reading Revelation in our day and age. And it may be a bit different to what you've heard elsewhere in the past. We will also be seeing how we can hear from this ancient and fascinating text in ways that can inform our Christian discipleship to challenge us to be better disciples of Jesus. Uh, also, uh, along with some hymnody, there's also some wonderful art on Revelation. Uh, this is the tapestry from Coventry Cathedral, uh, which hangs in the rebuilt cathedral. It's done by Graham Sutherland, uh, who I, I love his artwork generally, and this is spectacular. You've got the enthroned Jesus, surrounded by the four living creatures, and uh, I don't know if you can see just underneath uh, Jesus' feet, there's a little man there. If you've ever been to Coventry Cathedral, that man is about six foot, so he's kind of my size. And uh, thanks, Peter, for turning the lights down. He's about my size, and th this tapestry dominates the front of the cathedral. And the cathedral is designed in such a way that really, wherever you are in the building, the eyes of the Son of Man on the throne are looking at you. You can't escape the gaze of the enthroned Christ. So we'll leave that up there for a bit. And uh, you know, if you don't like what I'm saying, you've got something nice to look at. One of the problems with Revelation is that people 
often seem to forget that it has a very specific historical context. And so they tend to read it as if it were written for us today. This, I think, is to do a disservice to the text. It's to make it do things that it wasn't written to do. Also, many of those who have set dates, made films or written books about the end of the world have claimed inspiration from the book of Revelation. In fact, if you ask most people what they know about Revelation, one of the first things they will say, and I know this because I've tested it, one of the first things they'll say is, it's about the end of the world. And it's true, there is a lot of imagery in Revelation that sounds pretty catastrophic. Apocalyptic, you might say, but we'll come to that in a minute. However, is it actually accurate to say that Revelation is about the end of the world? Well, my answer to that is both yes and no. If what we mean by the question is, is the book of Revelation a kind of dummy's guide to the end of the world? then no, it isn't. And those who have tried to see in the text a precise sequence of events which they can map onto the events of human history, well, they've discovered that Revelation is no better at helping us predict the date of the end of the world than, say, Nostradamus. However, there may be another way in which Revelation can speak to us powerfully about the end of the world. Have you ever heard someone say, perhaps after a tragic bereavement or a serious illness, it was the end of the world. They clearly don't mean that the world has literally ended. And to assume that they did would be to rather miss their point. What they mean is that the world as they knew it has gone and that they're now living in a new world. A world that is in a very real sense totally different to the world they were living in before. And of course, such world-ending or world-transforming events aren't always tragic or traumatic. Sometimes it can be a, a positive thing that ends one world and starts another. Think of the unexpected lottery win, or falling in love, or becoming a parent. The old world ends, and a new world begins. So when the book of Revelation uses imagery and language about the end of the world, which it does, it's telling its readers that if they understand its message, if they spend time with its prophetic images, they too will experience the end of the world as their old world is brought to an end and as they find themselves entering into a new world in which Jesus Christ is at the center of everything drawing all things and all people to himself, just as in our tapestry. Jesus is at the centre of the rebuilt new cathedral of Coventry. Those who have sought to confine Revelation into this realm of predictive prophecy make it of relevance, really, only to those who might happen to find themselves living in the last days of planet Earth which almost always, for those people, of course, they think includes them. I know people who have got a list that they've got off the internet or the God Channel, the prophecies of Revelation mapped against the European Union or something like that. They're ticking it all off and, you know, it's telling them that it's all going to end in their lifetime. 
The difficulty with this way of doing it is that it runs the risk of completely alienating the book from the vast swathe of humanity, which probably includes ourselves, unless we really are the last generation, who have been born and lived and died within the normal course of history. And as Christians, we would usually want to assert that the Bible is of equal relevance to us all, whether we happen to live and die in the first 11th or 21st centuries. So to restrict part of the Bible to only being relevant to whatever the last generation of humanity might happen to be seems to me to be rather missing the point. I think it proclaims a message of world-ending significance. I don't think it predicts the end of the world. So what is it that's so special about the message of the book of Revelation? A good place to start finding an answer to this question is to consider what significance and effect the book had for those for whom it was initially written. Now, we're quite fortunate with the book of Revelation because unlike some other biblical books, we have a, a very clear understanding of its first recipients. This is because Revelation plays its hand fairly early on, and we saw this in our passage for this morning. It's a circular letter written to be sent round seven churches in seven cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So here's a little map listing them all and mapping them. You can see you've got Patmos on the bottom left where John is writing, and then you've got the, uh, the, the cities on the right-hand side. And uh, what we find is that it sort of transcribes a clockwise circle in the order in which they're named which does kind of rather imply that what happened is John wrote his manuscript, sent it with a messenger to the first church, where it would have been read and a copy would have been left, and then he'd gone to the next church, where it would have been read and a copy would have been left, and then on to the next church, and so on. And it goes around this circular route. And the churches are named there in chapter 1, verse 11. And although the whole text is intended for each church... Uh, chapters 2 and 3, which we're going to come on to next time, are some short letters addressed to each of the seven churches individually. Um, in my experience, people have often heard the letters of Revelation preached on, because we kind of know what to do with letters. They're a bit like what Paul wrote. Uh, it's all the other wacky stuff that comes from chapter 4 onwards that we tend to shy away from. But we'll get to that later in the year. We can learn a little bit from the letters and from the beginning about who received Revelation. They were a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, living in fairly wealthy and cosmopolitan cities, fully integrated into the politics, the economics, and the religions of the Roman Empire of the second half of the first century. Those in the churches of the seven cities would have encountered the full force of the propaganda of the Roman Empire on a daily basis with all aspects of their culture, from architecture to art, from finance to family life, all reinforcing the mythology of the Roman Empire, particularly in the first century, focused around emperor worship, also held alongside the Greco-Roman pantheon of other pagan gods. And in this kind of context, anyone who wanted to worship Jesus as Lord was immediately putting themselves not only at odds with the dominant practices of society, but at odds with the empire itself, which was a pretty dangerous place to find yourself. Only a few years before Revelation was written, the emperor Nero 
had systematically persecuted anyone who wouldn't worship him. He had enacted a range of horrific punishments on those who refused to comply with his empire-wide directive to worship the emperor. Now, he didn't just target Christians. I mean, he had a thing about the fire service who he thought were conspiring against him. So he was a pretty paranoid emperor, but he did persecute Christians. And there are stories that have come down of Christians being burned alive by Nero to light his gardens in the evenings. But instead of simply writing the people in his churches a note saying, don't worship the emperor, don't give up, don't compromise, he sends them instead this captivating and riveting vision which invites them to use their imaginations to see their world differently, to see through the lies and the propaganda of the empire and to live lives of devoted faithfulness to Jesus as Lord of their lives. There are many mysteries associated with the book of Revelation, not least who wrote it and when. The text itself gives us a name, saying it's a revelation that's given to someone called John. The problem is that we just don't know which John this is. I mean, it was, it was as common a name in the first century as it is today. Traditionally, it has been believed to have been John, the brother of James, the disciple of Jesus, you know, John and James, sons of Zebedee, um, who was also believed traditionally to have written John's gospel and the three letters of John. However, and I'm not going to go into the detail of this today, you'll be glad to know, scholars now think it is very unlikely that John the Apostle, who we meet in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, wrote the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, or the letters, and that it's even less likely that he wrote the book of Revelation. So just unpick what you think you've always known about this in your mind. The most that can be said with any certainty was that the author self-identifies as a man called John and that he seems to have been a Jewish convert to Christianity and that he has pastoral responsibilities for seven churches in Asia Minor. We don't know any more than that. There's a similar uncertainty about the date it was written. You may have heard a date that uh, goes around a lot of 95 AD, if you've ever studied this before. Um, this is during the reign of Domitian. This has given way to other possibilities, and the one I prefer is a date of about 71, which is during the reign of Vespasian. And an earlier date puts Revelation so much closer to the tyrannical deeds of Nero, who was emperor from 54 to 68. And Nero certainly crops up in the book, not by name, uh, but we'll come on to that in uh, later sermons. Anyway. As he writes, John, whoever he may be, the author of Revelation, casts his mind back to those times in the past when the people of God had struggled to remain faithful under the pressure to compromise to an oppressive empire. Because that's the context of his churches. The people of God struggling to remain faithful under the pressure to compromise to an oppressive empire. And so he uses imagery from the Israelite enslavement in Egypt, painting pictures of sequences of plagues, which echo the plagues that preceded Israel's release from Egyptian slavery and their time then, their exodus and their time in the wilderness. He also borrows imagery from another time in Israel's history, a few hundred years later, the Israelite exile in Babylon 
referencing visions from the book of Daniel, which speak of resistance to empire and unswerving faithfulness to God. Throughout Revelation, Rome is consistently referred to using the code word Babylon as the first century Roman Empire is spoken of in terms of the ancient Babylonian Empire. Be a bit like me now pointing at the global empires of the 21st century and saying they remind me of Rome. He looked at Rome and said this reminds me of Babylon. This reminds me of ancient Egypt. Rome is not the first empire to try and persecute the people of God. So let's hear how the people of God got through it in the past and see if that can help us in our day, says John to his readers. And I think the invitation here is for readers in any century, including our own, to identify the empires of our day, which are hostile to the witness of Jesus, and to see them as reincarnations of the notorious hostile empires of the past. And the author borrows more than just language from the book of Daniel. He also borrows a style of writing known as apocalyptic. This was a genre of literature greatly enjoyed by the Jews in the couple of hundred years before Revelation was written. And the best way I can explain it is to say that it functioned for them in a way that is not too dissimilar to how science fiction functions for us today. So, if we were to watch an episode of Star Trek or a futuristic sci-fi film, we know that what we're watching is not a detailed prediction of what the world is going to be like. You know, I don't watch Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation and think that one day there's going to be a man called Jean-Luc Picard who's going to ride around on a ship called the Enterprise. I know it's not a prediction. It's just a story that's set in an imagined future. Nor do we sit around trying to work out at what date science fiction is going to come true. As we are here this morning, the year 2001 is firmly in the past a date immortalised in the influential science fiction novel and the Stanley Kubrick film, Arthur C. Clarke wrote it. Did anybody see it? It was on last night, BBC Two. I got home, you saw it. It's a fantastic film, I love the ending. Anyway, um, the fact that, I mean that film was made in 1968, that's when the screenplay was written, the book came out a year later. The fact that the events of 2001 A Space Odyssey didn't happen by the year 2001 in no way robs them of their power because they were never written as futuristic predictions in the first place. Sci-fi, at its best, is a literary genre that is set in an imaginary future in order that the people who like reading that kind of material can free their minds from you know, the world that they spend most of their time living in. They can go into the imaginative space of the sci-fi novel or the sci-fi film, and when they're there, they can get fresh reflection and insight into issues that the film or the, or the novel explore, which actually are of relevance to the world that you have to live in day by day when you've closed the book or turned the telly off. This was exactly how apocalyptic functioned in the first century. It used futuristic, out-of-this-world images and stories to help the people reading it or hearing it read to them 
gain a new perspective on their lives. And it frequently used the literary device of a vision or a dream to provide a context for the vivid images which depicted alternative ways of understanding the world. So, a wicked empire, such as Rome, might become, in an apocalyptic book, a fantastical many-headed beast, stamping all over the earth in the way that empires do. Or it might become a corrupt prostitute, selling its pleasures but corrupting your soul. Struggling churches, such as those we saw on the map earlier, struggling churches might become shining stars held safe in the hand of their saviour. Struggling churches might become a faithful woman who never compromises on her great love. The word apocalyptic, if you do your ancient Greek, it simply means revealed. Um, a bride would apocalypse herself on her wedding day. You take the veil off and you can see the face clearly for the first time. It just means reveal. And this is where we get our word revelation from. The first word of the book is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it refers to the fact that this kind of literature is primarily about revealing heavenly mysteries, passing on to its readers heaven's perspective on their earthly situation. As we saw in our reading for this morning, the book of Revelation begins with a vision of heaven. And the author, John, writes that he's caught up in the spirit and given a revelation from God about the way that the world really is. This is classic apocalyptic opening lines. If you've read other apocalypses, you're going, yeah, yeah, I know what's coming. I've seen this before. And I think that what follows can be summed up fairly easily. Uh, this is like Simon's summary of the whole book of Revelation. The emperor is not all-powerful, no matter how powerful he appears to be. The empire is not all-good, no matter how effective its propaganda may be. Only God is all-powerful and all-good. And God is to be known through his son, Jesus Christ, who is drawing the world to himself. And Jesus will accompany all those who make the journey with him from enslavement under the empire to new life in Christ. Now, you might say, well, why couldn't John have just written that and saved us all a lot of hassle? It's a legitimate question. But we'd have lost out on so much imagery and fun along the way if he had. So, imagine the scene. We've got John, this Christian pastor, convert from Judaism, responsible for these seven churches in Asia Minor. He's imprisoned on the prison island of Patmos, and he's sat there and he's praying for his churches, and he's meditating on the Jewish scriptures, especially the books of Exodus and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, each of which reflect in their own way on what it means to be the faithful people of God when the pressure is on to compromise. And as he brings his world of the first century before the scriptures, he has this moment of divine revelation that the world is not as the world wants to be seen, that the empire is really satanic, that the emperor is not divine, and that the churches of Christ are not insignificant despite all appearances to the contrary. 
And then he picks up his pen and starts writing his book, borrowing language and imagery and theology from the Jewish scriptures and beyond, but always giving it his own distinctive twist to make it relevant for his first century context. I don't think John woke up one morning having had a dream and then in some kind of trance-like state grabbed a pen and wrote it down and thought that'll do and bunged it in an envelope and sent it off. This is a carefully constructed literary creation within a very specific genre to a very specific context. And when we come to read it today, we may find it helpful to do with John's text what he did with his own scriptures, which is to bring our world to the world of the text, submitting our lives to its imaginative and transformatory effects learning to see the world the way John saw it, and in so doing, gaining heaven's perspective on our earthly situations. Do you remember a few years ago, people used to wear WWJD badges? What would Jesus do? Fine, I, mean, I never wore one, but fine, it's a good question to ask. I sometimes look at the world around me and I think, WWJT, what would John think? What, what would a a mindset of absolute faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of overwhelming odds. What would, what would that look like now? You wouldn't read Paul's letters as if they were written for us directly today, would you? As a responsible reader of 1 Corinthians, you know that you have to locate it in its historical context. And then you might begin to look for those places where the world of ancient Corinth might touch our own world. And then through those points of correspondence, you might allow the ancient text that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to speak to us. I think we need to take the same approach with Revelation. We might usefully ask ourselves where the empire or Babylon might be found in our contemporary world. We might want to ask where the propaganda of that empire is most effective at seducing us into compromise. We might ask where the suffering church is struggling to bear faithful witness to their faith in the face of seemingly overwhelming opposition. Because it's in places like these that the vision of Revelation echoes down the centuries with a message as fresh and challenging as the day it was written. And the key questions that John addresses in his first chapter of the Apocalypse revolve around issues of power and worship. He invites his audience to consider who is really sitting on the throne. This is neither an idle nor a speculative question, because the one on the throne holds not just power, but also attracts worship from those who give their allegiance to the throne. And from the perspective of those living in the seven cities of Asia Minor, the answer was clear. The emperor in Rome occupied the position of ultimate power and worship. The emperor was on the throne. Archaeologists tell us that there were sacred precincts in both Ephesus and Pergamon, two of the cities that Revelation is written for, that are dedicated to the worship of the emperor. If you lived in that period, the emperor was on the throne and your job was to worship him. However, John wants those in the seven churches of the seven cities to come to realize that supreme power actually resides with the one seated on the throne in heaven and that he alone is worthy of worship. Those in the seven congregations therefore find themselves caught between two competing ideologies and they're faced with the choice as to which power they're going to recognize 
before which throne are they going to bow? To help them in this choice, John wants them to learn to see the earth from heaven's perspective. And so he carefully structures the opening chapter to draw the audience rhetorically into his vision. little diagram for you. He begins with an explanation of the revelation that he is passing on to them. If you notice, it starts with God. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation comes from God in heaven. It comes to Jesus, who gives it to an angel. And then suddenly we're down on earth, who gives it to John. John then passes it on to the seven congregations... And then he is caught up in the spirit and invites those reading the text with him to come with him back up into heaven where he receives his commission and his vision of the Son of Man. And then he comes back down to the earth again and writes his seven letters. And then from chapter four onwards, he's back up in the heavens. And hopefully by that point, as readers, we're with him too. And the whole of the rest of the book until right near the end is journeying through the heavens with John, looking at the earth from heaven's perspective. From an earthly perspective, all is lost. Tiny little church, insignificant, in the midst of a big city, making very little difference to anybody or anything. That's the situation in Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Bloomsbury, London. And yet, from heaven's perspective, Jesus is on the throne. What we do here this morning is not insignificant. Because as we name Jesus as Lord, we are engaging in probably the most subversive thing it is possible for a human being to do, which is to challenge the powers that exist in the world that tend towards darkness. And if my life and your life is lived focused on the one who tends towards light, then the light of the one enthroned in heaven breaks into the earth. The heavenly stuff comes down to the earth. And through our lives and our witness and our faithfulness, just as in the first century, through the lives, witness and faithfulness of those in the seven churches, Christ comes to the earth and everything is made new. The old has gone and the new comes. And this isn't a one-off thing that's going to happen one day in the future. It's happening now, this moment. The old has gone, the new has come, because we bear faithful witness to Jesus. And then we live that into reality. We don't just say it, we do it. So there we are, challenging, difficult stuff. Where are the empires of our day? The empires of global capital? Where are the powers that take us inexorably towards climate chaos? Where are the powers that take us towards impoverished people around the world? Where are the powers that stop people getting houses in our city? All of this stuff, these are the empires of our day. And they're not all powerful. There is good news here. Christ is more powerful than they are, and we are Christ's people, and through us and our witness, the light never goes out. Before, us, before I lead us into prayer, I'd like to just spend a moment reflecting on a meeting I attended here in Bloomsbury during the week. It was a meeting about um, religious extremism, particularly in Asia, and it was held at Conway Hall, and it was hosted by Humanists International. 
And it was there I met a woman called Bonya Ahmed, who's a Bangladeshi-American writer and blogger. And she'd been attacked by uh, Muslim extremists um, with a machete. She'd been seriously injured, and her husband, Avajit Roy, had been killed. I think that one of the messages that she would have shared with us is that for humanists, human life is particularly precious. And of course, the pain that's caused by religiously motivated violence is acute in many parts of the world. And at that meeting, which was organized by Andrew Copson, the chief executive of Humanists UK, somebody shared something rather moving to me. They reminded us that Mahatma Gandhi had started meetings in India with inviting people from different religious faiths, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and so on, to pray in their own traditions at the start of the meeting. And this was Mahatma Gandhi's attempt to uh, quell religious extremism and bring together diverse communities. So with that in mind, I'll lead us in prayer using our Christian tradition. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we enter into prayer, we think of churches that have been closed in Sri Lanka and services stopped following the terror attacks on Easter Sunday. We cannot begin to fathom the impact on communities which were gathered to pray. Nor can we comprehend why the families of extremists killed themselves and others in churches and in busy hotel restaurants. We don't know what to feel or think about such horror. Loving God, we also feel dismay at the slaughter of Muslims in the mosques in New Zealand and at the news coming in of another attack on a Jewish synagogue in the United States of America. Lord, we hold before you people whose worlds have been shattered by trauma and violence. We pray for those people who resist the coercion to believe. And we ask you to accept our personal versions of faith, however you find us. We pray for those whose faith creates divided allegiances. As we step back into a dangerous and divided world, we earnestly pray once again for peace. We seek to develop an attitude of peace within us and a renewed drive to create a just and peaceful society. So we join our prayers with those of people of other religious traditions and the affirmations of dissenters. Amen.